Welcome to the House of Surgery, a podcast brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. In this series, you'll hear from and about surgeons in all specialties, in all practice configurations, and in all locations. Their success stories, advice, challenges they've overcome, and words of inspiration as they serve their patients with quality, integrity, and professionalism, and strive to heal all with skill and trust. This episode features a fireside chat with ACS past president, Dr. Julie Freischlag, who is the chief executive officer of Advocate Health and executive vice president for health affairs at Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Dr. Freischlag talks about her career progression, lessons learned, work-life integration, and more. The program host is Dr. Mohsen Shabahang for the ACS Academy of Master Surgeon Educators. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily those of the American College of Surgeons. Enjoy the program. Julie, it's great to, um, this has been an honor. I've watched you um, uh, watch your talks at multiple meetings, uh, 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 you know, and in, in across the country. And it's truly an honor to have uh, the opportunity to have this conversation. Well, thanks so I'm, much for asking me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, the, the Executive Vice President for Health at Wake Forest University. Um, you have been division chief, you've been department chair, um, you've been chief academic officer. Um, you're on different boards. Um, and, and just uh, the journey is a fascinating journey. And I kind of enjoyed both our conversation and also looking at your um, uh, CV and, and looking at the journey. I want to start by asking you um, uh, about the journey and the parts that really stand out to you and and. Uh, would love our uh, participants to hear your summary and what it's meant. Sure. Well, I wish I could tell you it was all planned, you know, that I had this grand plan as I went through my life. But as most of us, it, it's sort of serendipity, taking advantage of situations and, and great mentors as you went through. So I was going to be a teacher when I was in college because my mother was a teacher and they sort of closed education. So I ended up going to medical school, mainly because nursing school, I'd have to leave college. I was at the University of Illinois. And then I did surgery first as a medical student because I thought I wanted to be a pediatrician. And uh, I love surgery. You know, I just found that's where I wanted to be. And Stephen Economo was the chief of surgery there. And turned out I trained with his son. He was a fellow intern of mine as I went to UCLA. And I decided to go for an adventure. If I were to tell you most of the things I do, I said, why don't we try this, you know, to do it in what am I going to learn? Who am I going to meet? So I went off to California to train and, and spent time out there. And then I really just wanted to be a great surgeon. You know, I ended up loving vascular surgery because of Westmore and Ron Busatil. And then when I got into that, I, I sort of realized that maybe I wanted to like re- reorganize how we did some things and, and thought we could do it better. So teaching and training has always been my thing. I was in the OR today helping a young faculty member do a really difficult first rib case, you know, because he wanted me there, a young gal who was embolizing her arm, nothing better. And there was a third year student there today who wants to be a vascular surgeon. So her and I talked about why she should do that, you know, and, and the fellow was a woman also. So it was really very different than when I started. So part of it was to just be really a great surgeon. 
uh, found out I really wanted to be a teacher like my mom, but I was teaching surgery, not second grade, you know, to do it. And then also, what kind of difference can you make? And and the people I've gotten to meet and the things I've gotten to do. And, uh, and that's why the American College of Surgeons has been so important in other places is that it's given you opportunity along the way. Because back in the 80s, I was probably the most diverse person they saw. There, there were no yes. people of color. There were very few women. I was only the sixth woman to finish UCLA, only the sixth woman to get her master's certificate in the country. So it was a new thing. But I must admit, I didn't notice that as much as the fact that I just wanted to be a really good vascular surgeon. So this is really fascinating because obviously um, there, there are multiple facets to ask questions on. I first want to ask about leadership. And, and uh, you, so, you became, so you were a division chief for vascular surgery at UCLA. Obviously, as uh, Dr. Sachiva mentioned, you became a department chair. And at this moment, you're, you're in a high level of healthcare. Um, uh, leadership. What made you be- want to be a leader? What when you that first leadership role that you took? Um, you know, you obviously were were I'm sure happy as a vascular surgeon. What made you want to be a leader? Yeah, I think part of it is you look at how things are organized, and if you're part of the team, you can influence very well. But if if you're not the leader, you can't change the world, right? And so as I looked. Uh, when I was in Milwaukee, my division chief was looking at the chair position and he didn't get it. So I realized he was going to stay there being division chief. So I was ready to do it. I, I thought there were things that we could do differently and make it happen. And then UCLA, where I trained, invited me back to actually run the people that trained me. That actually probably was the biggest skill set I put together. So I think it was looking at how better to teach and train how to allow people to be more individualistic. Because, you know, when I trained, we all wore little white coats and little white pants, and we were supposed to sort of be like everyone else. And how do you teach and train people in a unique way so they can express themselves and find their space? Um, And also, I I really felt that in order to change um, behavior and look at how you can integrate your life and, and, and be able to do both, you know, to have a personal life, to have a functional life that you needed to look a little differently at, at organization and how to make it work. And I, I must admit, I'm not sure I wrote that down, but I, I think there was a piece of me that said we, we need to think, because I was, you know, every other night in hospital, um, mm-hmm. even when I was a fellow, I didn't even have a vacation. I had to sort of declare I was leaving for 10 days. You know, they just didn't even think you needed a vacation. It was a different time, you know, and they really felt that if you worked all the time and saw all the cases, you'd be a better surgeon. Even if you were exhausted, they really thought that was resilience back then. So I really thought um, after watching um, my pyramidal program where people were fired, I I saw people have all sorts of health issues, that there was a better way to make this happen, even though it's a stressful sport, that you could do it in a way that you could individualize people's treatment, just like you do your patients, that maybe you should do that for training as well. So, Julie, one of the things that, that, that obviously we talked about is, and you've mentioned being kind of a first in multiple things. When you were chair at Hopkins, I think you mentioned there were four women chairs in the country. And when you, you know, were a vascular surgeon, obviously it wasn't the most, I'm kind of assuming not the most friendly environment for a woman surgeon. And and I want to kind of talk about that, as I'm sure many of our participants are, are interested in that. How did you view it at the time? How did you, as you went into this, 
what were you thinking about this as a trendsetter or an example, or was it just, I'm going to do this? And, and how did you view all of that? Yeah, well, it, it's sort of funny because I, I did go into it to be, you know, a, a great surgeon. And, and um, when you think back to your life, so my, my two grandparents, it's my two grandfathers, one made boilers for the railroad and one was a coal miner. And I knew both of them. And when I was uh, a little kid in Carbondale, Illinois, I skipped first grade because my brother was a year ahead of me. I read all the books and I was sort of a discipline problem. I talked a lot. So they skipped me. And, and, and I, I'm not that tall. And I was really small then, too. And my grandfather, who subsequently died about a year later, probably from a ruptured aneurysm, because my mother had an aneurysm, too. And her brother died of a ruptured aneurysm. And don't worry, my aorta is fine. It's the normal size. But he actually looked at me when I was six and said, you know, Julie, they're going to tell you you can't do things. This is a coal miner. And he said, and you're just going to tell him you can. And so I think part of me, uh, I was raised with two brothers and, and I just went off. And, and it was a different time. There weren't girl sports back then. I became a lifeguard. I, I actually uh, became a bartender. I mean, you, I tried all sorts of things that you could go sort of make your own way. So for me, I, I think it was just... Um, an adventure of sorts of uh, challenging myself to be as best as I could be. And then um, I also possess a pretty good sense of humor. And, and so part of it is why addressing it in a way that people like to be around you so that, that even if they perhaps didn't want to train you or they weren't sure you're supposed to be there, at least you were enjoyable. And so there you were, you know, being enjoyable, being very good, you know, being skilled um, one of my mentors, Dr. Brissett, told me, you're one of the best ones I've ever trained. But he never told me because that's not what you did in the 80s, right, to do it. But but I think part of it is just having that esprit de corps that you knew you were the lucky one. You know, you were the one treating the disease and not having it and then being able to make a difference in those lives. So I think focusing on your patients, focusing on your trainees, making sure that that, that ambiance was good. Um, made me just keep going, looking at how you could better teach and train and, and run systems. Even now, you know, how can we do this better so that it's not so stressful, not only for our patients, but for us, you know, especially as we went through COVID and everything else, how can, how can you make this work when you really don't know what's happening? I think one thing about surgeons, you know, when we walk in that OR, we are full of hope, right? We walk in there, we're going to make it work. And only when it turns south, do we pivot and, and when you deal with people with mergers and acquisitions and corporate, they assume everything's going to fail. So they move fast, they move furious, and, and they don't have that hope. They, they have sort of a, a fear. You know, they want to move fast and get it done. And, and you, so you have to partner with those people who are good, too. They get things done. But as surgeons, we actually walk in full of hope because you wouldn't want us walking in your OR thinking, oh, hell's going to break loose. Even though sometimes you know it's going to, you still are hopeful. And so, so I have to ask you, when you became chair at Hopkins, um, maybe a silly question, but were you nervous? Well, I, um, I actually remember when he called me, Ed Miller did, to give me the job, because um, I actually looked at a couple of other chair jobs, and they gave them to inside people. So I just figured that's what was going to happen. So he called me, and I said I needed a day to think about it. And I think he actually freaked. He was like, what do you mean you're going to think about it? So I thought about it for a day. And then when I told him, yes, my phone lit up, you know, to do it. Everybody was um, shocked. I, one, I got it because they had a pretty good insight candidate as well. 
And many people thought I was going to fail because they were like, Why, what are you doing this for? You know, you're not from there. You know, you, you're a specialist. You're a female and you're from California. I think that's bothered him the most as I was <laughs> from California. Um, I think I went into it um, with open minds and learning how to listen. The first three years were tough. It was really, really hard. I had a seven-year-old too. So my son was seven. We moved there. My husband had been, I met him in Milwaukee. We had moved to LA for five years now. We're moving to Baltimore. But we actually found a, a great uh, neighborhood for my kid. My husband stopped working then, so he helped take care of our son to make that happen. And one by one by one, when I showed up, the first thing I did was meet with every resident one by one by one. So, you know, you had buy-in from the residents. I met with them every Monday morning, either the ones, twos, threes, fours, or fives for 11 years. I would meet with them every Monday before I went in the OR. So transparency, a lot of conversations. I hired over 100 surgeons over time, you know, because we uh, needed to do that. But part of it is I had a good dean. Uh, the culture was interesting. You know, there were a lot of things that needed to be changed with specialty care and who was on call and how we trained them and, and, and how we looked. So slowly but surely, we sort of changed that. And I learned to ask lots of questions, you know, about what other people thought. And, and I think that's probably my best trait is uh, when there's a problem, I bring a group together, we listen, you make a decision, but you make sure everybody gets heard mm. to make that happen. Um, but the first three years was tough. It was like craziness, you know, with people's behaviors and what people said and did. And 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 also everybody was like, um, how'd you get that job? I remember Ron Busadil asking me, how did you get that job at Hopkins? And I said, well, you taught me how to do this, you know, and and then a few years later, he became chair at UCLA. So I think part of it was just having that and then having a vision of how to grow. I, I think the worst thing, too, Mo, is when I showed up in 2003, that was the year of 80-hour um, work week, yes. timeouts, and RVUs. And when I showed up, they thought mm -hmm. all of them were my idea. And so nobody really knew what they – they knew what they billed. They didn't know what they collected. They didn't know what an RVU was. We had four wrong site surgeries my first year there. Um, so the timeouts were interesting uh, and, and also the whole 80-hour work week. And then, as you probably remember, Hopkins got in trouble for that with the Department yes. of Medicine. So because they got in trouble, we had to pay attention to it. But it was those things that we had to negotiate to get to the next step, too. And, and uh, we did. Uh, but it, it was hard because they really thought that I brought all that with so that, that negativity from that. So from that experience and many of the other experiences, you, you've mentioned hope as a way to those, those tough three years of getting, getting through it, moving forward. Um, what else would you advise uh, um, anyone getting into these difficult situations uh, that are challenging? What else were, were the secrets to um, you being able to cope with it? Right. Well, you have to be very organized. So use that electronic calendar, organize yourself so you can make the meetings you're supposed to do. I still was operating. The first five years there, I did everything and did call. And then, then I moved into being more of a thoracic outlet uh, surgeon. But you need to be organized. You need to be available. Um, sense of humor, if you can make that happen. Um, and then you need to turn it on and off. I think one of the things I taught many of my young faculty was when you're at work, work. And when you go home, be at home. And so this COVID thing sort of messed me up, right? What's this work at home thing? Uh, why do I have my computer with me wherever I go? 
because I was used to coming home, maybe late, but I would stop working. So I, I think being able to turn it on and off. You know, my son remembers vacations. He remembers me being at his games. I would put that on my calendar because I timed his all his basketball games in middle school. I wasn't very good. I didn't pay much attention. And one time he told me I wasn't good at it, but I was like, you don't pay me enough to be good at it. But I made sure I was there uh, and made sure that I was available uh, when you needed to be. And that actually calms you. You know, if you actually decide, okay, I'm chilling out. I'm going to go to a game. I'm going to read a book. I'm going to run, whatever it is that you do, you know, to really phase out the other side. And it also makes you real. You know, when people see you doing that, they say, oh, I can do it. So every Friday when I was at Hopkins, I take my kid to the bus stop, which meant that I didn't get to work till 839. And I just told everybody, I'm taking them to the bus stop on Friday. And that's just the way it is. Um, And it was powerful. And and I also told people, you know, I would like you at Grand Rounds. They used to be on Saturday. We didn't move them to the week. But, you know, if you have young kids and stuff, if you make half of them, I'm good. You know, show up when you have a complication. You don't have to be there all the time. And now with the COVID, I mean, you can actually do a little virtual. You can do this. You have to be careful not to do too much. But uh, giving people flexibility so that it was okay. And talking about it. I always tell stories so that people know I was at the basketball games or I was here or that we went on holiday, uh, whatever it is, so that they knew that I was doing that. So maybe it was okay. They could do it too. Seems like a lot of intentionality. In, in, and we're going to, I see a, one question I want to kind of uh, make sure I, I get to that. It says institutional culture change is challenging. And as you mentioned, listening is very important. Do you have any other advice on how to turn course to help the culture of an institution evolve? And that was something I wanted to make sure we get to, is how do you make culture change as a leader? Yeah, well, it takes a lot of time. So you have to do an inventory. Sometimes there's acute things you have to take care of, where there's incidents, where you you have to make a decision, and those decisions sort of show you, look at the North Star, and you always do the right thing. So my husband and my family and my good friends said, Julie always does the right thing. So when I argue something, or I am outspoken, I'm always right. I never argue something where I'm not right. So you always want to have a North Star. So whatever it is, when there's an incident uh, that happens, you you want to make the right decision with it. And there's always something, right, that's going on and you want to be transparent about it. And one of the incidents that happened at Hopkins is we had an incident where one of my surgeons threw a bloody lap at an anesthesiologist and hit him with it. And it was hep C. Hmm. And it was really complicated, right? And it turned out we had to let that surgeon go. And it was very sad. But it was assault. It was the wrong thing to do. And frankly, the anesthesiologist left within a year or two because it was a culture breakdown. So we went through restorative justice, just really talking, how could we ever get to a point that you would throw something at somebody? Why, why would you do that? And, and, and where was that? And so when you talk about those things and everybody knew what, and I was so upset about the whole thing. And, and the surgeon that that happened to ended up landing in a new place life was good to do it and, and anesthesiologists too, but it cost a lot of money and lots of angst. So I think part of it is, is calling that out, making sure it's transparent about what you do. And then I made some mistakes. I mean, the other thing is I've put some people in positions that couldn't be there, hired some people. Even now I've hired a couple of people that weren't the right people and, and cut your losses. You know, if you hire the wrong person, 
and they're not doing a good job, you know, get them out of that position and say, you know what, I made a mistake, just like everybody does. So that you similar when you're at M&M, you know, I, I, that's my infection, that's my bleeding, you know, own it to do it. Because uh, you can't make it 100% to do it. So being vulnerable, you know, showing that through your stories or through whatever you do. And then figuring out who your friends are. And some of the people that I thought weren't going to be my friends at all turned out to be great friends at there and here. Um, I came here because the previous CEO was actually asked to leave too. So the culture was a little rocky when I showed up here. And so you want to pay attention to whoever's around because some people that look like your friends may not be. And some that are may. And, and when I came here the first year, I had to fire five chairs and the CFO. I mean, so it was a little wow. busy that first year. Uh, and they were all for good reasons. It, and everybody knew they had to go. Um, but it made a statement that, you know, we don't tolerate people that don't do the right thing. Uh, so I think being very open about that. I do a monthly video now. So I talk to people every month so they can see me. Uh, we make sure we communicate with town halls. People know who I am in the city. I had somebody walk up to me yesterday saying, you're such a kind leader. We love you. You know, and she's somebody in the community just because I'm, it's a smaller city. But I think being vulnerable and being your best self wherever you are and then admitting when you screw up, you know, where you just, oh, that was a really bad decision. Let's, let's move over here. There are so many pearls in what you've just said. And, 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 um, um, I want to get to the question of courage, but I want to uh, go to Crystal Rodriguez's question. Um, and I'm going to just ju- cut, cut through the chase. What are one or two things you wish you had known early in your career? Yeah. Well, don't be so hard on yourself, Crystal. I, I, that's what I will tell you. I I was pretty bloody driven, you know, so I, I've been married twice. I was married to a medical oncologist and and we ended up getting divorced uh, right after I went into practice. He was, I took my first job in San Diego because of him. And he said I was too busy and that I really should give up surgery. And, and my therapist basically said, well, that's not going to work, you know, to do it. So really figuring out who should be with you, what you should do, how that works as well. And then not being so hard on yourself, you know, giving yourself a little bit of a break so you don't push yourself so hard. And, and knowing that you are going to have complications, not everyone's going to like you. Uh, and that's okay. You know, that you, again, making sure you always do the right thing. You do need to find that core. What is your core? You know, it, what's your core value? I never lie. I never cheat. Now that I'm older, we don't, right? Because you can't remember what you say. So you better tell the truth all the time. But you stick to your core values to make that happen. But really let be easy on yourself, just like, you know, your first few complications as a young faculty member, you just die over them, you know, as far as a wound infection or a stroke or what, oh my goodness, you, I can remember their faces and their names and everything, right, to do it. But it happens. So you need to know that that's what happens with you. And then get some really good colleagues, whether it's colleagues at work. I got colleagues at the American College of Surgeons. I mean, I joined them because there were hardly any women vascular surgeons. So I came over to the college where there were more women surgeons. You know, um, Patricia Newman had just started the AWS, you know, met Haley Samphy, Barbara Bass. I mean, find some really good colleagues that you feel um, camaraderie with so that you actually can feel comfort. So I think that's the biggest thing is you just don't want to be alone with a lot of things that are happening. And you also need to understand it's happening to everyone. So it's not just you, it's everyone has these struggles to do that. 
want to ask one question about courage because I mean you just mentioned you started this job you fired five uh, five chairs that all takes courage um where do you get your courage from where did you did you did you identify it as courage when you started leadership your leadership path and how do you um how do you sustain the courage to to do the difficult things yeah well i never regretted um doing something i have regretted not doing something mm. so um if you see someone um that does something awful um one of those chairs asked a resident to lie. How could you do that? And that's probably not the first time. So right. that's destroying another person, right? That's unforgivable. Uh, and the CFO lied to me. Uh, that's unforgivable. And, and making sure it's clear that people understand that's what it is. And then as you make those tough decisions, you know, people then realize that you're going to give them a chance if they stay as, uh, positive and, and good as you would want them to be. That even if things go wrong, even if there's financial difficulties or they made a mistake, as long as they own up and talk to you about it, that you'll be good about it. Now, I don't know where it came from. You know, maybe it's because, you know, I did come from, you know, small towns. My mom was a teacher. My dad ran newspapers. He was a circulation manager. I had two brothers. Uh, maybe it's from, you know, my roots of boilermakers and coal miners and that. My one grandmother made hats for a living. So a lot of people use their hands in my family. But I think part of it is that you wanted to make a difference not only for your patients, but for those around you. And the joy I get of watching those I train do things is amazing. This year, I've been able to go to about four things where my trainees have been president of the Georgia Vascular, running the service line at Spectrum Health, president-elect of Midwest Vascular. I mean, you look at them and you're just so proud of them. It's better than what you do. So I think um, that's what floats my boat is making it better for those behind you and then making sure people understand that, you know, if there's not truth, then there's consequences. That's a great point. And um, uh, another question in the chat box is uh, thank you for a great experience um, and your experience inspires uh, many surgeons. My question is how did you deal and manage resistance to change? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, change is hard in the sense that you have to adapt, right, to do it. I did have one surgeon at Hopkins come in and, and he sat there and, and, you know, John Cameron was the previous chair and, and was amazing, you know, and he was still there operating. They go, you're not like John Cameron. You don't do anything like John Cameron. We really wish you'd be like John Cameron because, you know, this is really, things are changing around here. And I looked at him, I said, you know, if I tried to be John Cameron, I would really fail because I'm not John Cameron. I'm Julie Freshlock. I, I adore John Cameron. He, he's an amazing person, but you can't be that person. So I think listening to people, letting them tell you how frustrated they are with the change and then trying to show them the future. So if we do this change, if we're going to focus on, we didn't do a lot of fundraising when I got to Hopkins and of course we needed to. And many of them didn't think that was appropriate. You know, really focusing on why fundraising can enhance your, your students, your residents, your research, how, and that it's sort of fun to talk to people who are thankful or want to help you with what you do. I remember the first time I asked someone for, 
you know, one and a half million dollars to fund a named chair. And she said yes and walked out the door. We all danced around the room, you know, uh, so it, it's a good thing. So I think listening and saying, I hear, I hear, but this is where we're going. This is the strategy. This is what's making it happen. Uh, and um, and I hear you, you know, that we really all wish, and say, with COVID, it's been big time, right, to do it. I hear you. You want it to go back to the way it was, but it, it's just not going to happen. But look at all the um, flexibility we get now through COVID. We're on the other side of that to make it happen. Um, but I think listening, talking, but then say, you know, I hear you, but we just can't do it. You know, and, and I understand that this may not be what you want to do, but this is where we're headed. And this is where how we're going to get there to make it happen. Um, and then sometimes people will leave. You know, they, it's just not where they want to be. And sometimes people, you need to ask them to leave because they're not with your program, you know, that they aren't fair or are good to other people around them. And frankly, people will remember the things you did that made a change because it was the right thing to do. And, uh, and um, it makes a whole big difference is where you go from, from that to do it. And, and part of it is just making them understand the reason you're doing it is because you care. I, I think the caring piece can't be overemphasized. Julie, we're just jumping around a little bit, and I hope that's okay, just as questions oh, great. and topics that we had. There's one question I want to jump to that says, um, I would like to ask uh, what your advice would be to female surgeons in countries where still female surgeons are sitting on the sidelines and not being able to lead. And, and I just want to mention, uh, you know, we mentioned that you're on the board of Agra Khan Medical School and have traveled to many different countries. And, and so, um, so what would you say to that question? Yeah, well, I, I think that the numbers are what's tough. Because when you look, when I started training in surgery, the number of women was really low, right? When I was a division chief in the country of Vascar, I was the only one. Mm -hmm. And when I was a chair of surgery, I was one of four. Okay, that's 2003. And I did have a dean tell me he couldn't hire me in 2002 because he didn't have a woman chair yet, and he couldn't make it the chair of surgery. So amazing. So when you do go to these foreign countries, there's very few women surgeons. You know, I've been to China where the number of women vascular surgeons are small. Certainly in Africa, the number of surgeons are small. Pakistan to do that. Um, uh, Malaysia. And, and, and the, just the sheer numbers are small. So those women actually need to band together and, and also perhaps band across countries. That's what's so nice about COVID and being able to do this is you can see and meet other people uh, perhaps without traveling, because also they lack resources, you know, to do it. Because um, we do know as the numbers get up to about 30%, which we've seen happen in general surgery training, vascular surgery training, uh, even 50 or 60%. And also when the men's surgeons you train with have partners who are pretty busy too, either they're other doctors or they do other things, or some of the older surgeons have daughters doing amazing things, and they actually realize, hmm, we need to remember her. Uh, uh, being asked by one of our our esteemed uh, senior colleagues when his daughter didn't get made partner in a law firm in New York because she was pregnant, he called me up and he said, you, have you ever seen this happen where they don't give women a chance because they're having families or kids? <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> I was like, so he was yes. a convert right away, right, to do it. Um, so I think being encouraging, um, finding one or two people that will support what you're doing 
you know, uh, we talk a lot about referral basis for women surgeons, you know, making sure it's equal. When you're at a Kaiser or a VA, it's pretty equal. But when you're in private practice, sometimes women surgeons get different referrals. And we just wrote an editorial about women neurosurgeons. It looks like they don't get as many high-end referrals as men neurosurgeons, and they get paid less because they do more EMM codes and not intervention. And and people refer to people that look like them. So how do you change that? You know, by changing call schedules. I did that everywhere I was, where you changed call schedules so everybody could be on call and get cases. You took away block time so everybody could get into the operating room so it wasn't just the one famous person. And it's making the, the system work for you so mm-hmm. that if you're on the team, you get equal referrals. Uh, and, and it's not related to years at service or waiting for someone to be out of town. But it is hard internationally. You know, when I look at the the, even even not women surgeons, it's women doctors in many of these countries. It, it's very hard to do that. And and I think as we go forward, just knowing others and having those conversations is helpful. We have a women's chair group that uh, we meet. And I have a woman's what app for vascular surgeons that we talk about cases and things and just making sure that we're there for each other. And then it also makes a big difference to have uh, male surgeons there for you that are, are supporting you, you know, the he for she, making sure that, that you understand, um, answering some of those questions sometimes that you would like not to answer, that you don't want to hear about reasons that you can't practice to do it. But sometimes if you're in an environment where it's not as good, you know, where people aren't being uh, fair, you may need to move, you know, you need to find a practice where you'll get referrals and you'll get opportunity uh, just like everyone else. And uh, I've moved a couple jobs where something happened that I didn't think was fair um, and, and I couldn't fix it, you know, so I moved. <laughs> and so I think part of it is you need to think about, you know, who you're with and who your partner's with. Are they choosing cases appropriately? Do they manage them well? Are they kind and nice to the staff and everybody else? And do they practice like you? You know, 90% of the time that will be true, but there will be times where you just have people that um, are irreconcilable. Yes. One question uh, that's in the uh, chat box is, you know, obviously as surgeons, we don't train people necessarily to be CEOs or department chairs necessarily. And the question is, how did you develop the necessary skills to do the administrative, uh, all the administrative roles that you've played? Yeah. Well, my first job was at San Diego because my first husband was a fellow there. So we were there for two years. And then Mike Zinner recruited me back to UCLA where I ran the VA service. And that was easy because I was the only one on the service. I had a couple of people do cases, but it was mainly me. (laughs) So it was easy to run that. Uh, And then I got divorced. And then I moved to Milwaukee and actually became the number two person at, at MCW. And my senior surgeon there, John Town, said, you have to learn finances. You have to learn how we get paid and what happens. So he made me really pay attention to what you build, what you collected. And back then, you know, it was early 90s. It was pretty lucrative. You know, we had, uh, you build, you collected, uh, you had extra money. I ran a research lab, but he really made me learn the finances of what that looked like. And then I ran the VA. So I learned how to run an OR and how to run a, a system, you know, to make it happen. And when I went to UCLA, I actually had a, um, an endowed um, clinic. So I had someone who was a benefactor 
So I had to manage uh, philanthropy funds and we actually, I managed a clinic and so learned how to manage a clinic to get people in and out of clinic. And it was a multidisciplinary clinic for vascular surgery. And I actually ran a diabetes clinic for a while, which was really crazy watching medicine people work to do it. It was mainly because of my benefactor. So learning the money wherever you are, as far as how do you get paid? Where does the money go? You know, what does, what do you need to do to get paid what you want? Where are your expenses is, is really important, especially these days, because inflation and staff costing are just crazy to do it. So I learned the money. I never got an MBA. People ask that all the time, but back then we didn't. Uh, but I had lots on my services. So when I went to um, Hopkins, I had the best MBA in the world, John Hunt, who helped me run that for 11 years. And we actually ran part of the hospital. So we ran the department. But I was a functional unit director, ran all the ORs, ran all the block time, and ran a $350 million surgical service for everybody to do it. And that actually taught me how to run hospitals. So then when it came time to be a dean or a CEO, I really knew how to run hospitals. I knew how to run clinics. And part of that is just how do you get the work done? You know, how do you make this happen to do it? I must admit, you know, the finances aren't my favorite thing. You know, you have to do it. I have a wonderful young CFO now, Stefan. You know, when he presented today, all the all the all the little bubbles were green. So we were real excited about that. But understanding what it takes to collect the money and pay your people uh, is really, really important. And then you're able to explain that to your teams so that they understand what's there and what's not there, especially as you go forward. But I think the best thing I did was strategy. You know, so as you look at this, what's your strategy? You know, how are you going to increase business? How are you going to increase operations? Where do you take it? With COVID, we've moved surgeries all over. We have five hospitals. We've moved into outpatient settings to smaller hospitals. Dr. Atal has taken his urology service to a hospital 20 miles south of us to do urology. I mean, we've moved things all over the place and surgery is going pretty much outpatient. So we really have been flexible where, where we go. So you don't have to love it. I don't think you have to take an MBA, but if you want to lead, you got to figure out what kind of money you have and you got to figure out, um, you know, what you can and cannot do and strategize. So having strategy sessions you where you prioritize hires, you prioritize what you're doing is and some of it you have to do because you have to care for patients, you know, trauma, cancer, but some of it you can decide what you're going to do and how much you're going to do because of the finances and because of opportunity. Um, but part of it is if you have no margin, you have no mission, right? And so yes. if you continue to have margins and money, you can actually go do the research, do the teaching and all the other things you wanna do. So it's really important to make sure like these deals we've made to make sure there's ample money for research and growth in that area too. And you've talked a little bit about some of the core values that allow for leadership. Um, you've mentioned your core values, your North Star, courage and vulnerability and so on. Do you feel that those are things that are common to leadership, whether it's in a healthcare field or other fields? Are there are those are those factors a very important are are they an important piece of the leadership journey? I think we're learning that leaders need to show their vulnerability. Because if you're a leader that shows no vulnerability and you just are, you know, um, tough, you know, where it's finances, it's margins, it's volumes, all of which are extremely important, but you don't show the vulnerability to take care of the patient that doesn't have means 
or take care. We're finally getting Medicaid expansion here in the state on December 1st, which is, is going to change our world and, and has payments and things. And we take care of a lot of charity care to do it. But I think you have to show your vulnerability and, and then people believe in you. They'll come up to you like on the street or in the elevator saying, thank you for caring. You know, that they know it's hard and, and not everybody wanted to grow like we did. And, and But I do it through storytelling um, and talking about it. Like today, starting off my meeting, uh, my nephew is a surgery resident. They just had their second baby. And that baby had uh, infantile persistent pulmonary hypertension and had to be in the ICU for two weeks. And luckily now she's home. And I told that story that I have a, a my nephew's a surgical resident that had his second baby in an ICU for two weeks. How stressful is that, you know, to do it? Luckily he had paternity leave, you know, before you didn't have that, but here she's fine now, he's fine. But just telling that story so they know the last two weeks, I've been really worried about my great niece, you know, to do it, did she, and I didn't even know what that disease was. I didn't even know it existed, right? I had to go look it up and call my ICU person. But I think telling, figuring out the way you talk about it, whether it's complications with your cases, uh, troubles with your kids at home, funny stories about your dog, whatever it is, coming up with a way that you have. And I've seen that with some of my young leaders. They watch that. And as they start talking, you need to be a person because if you're a person, it's really hard to hate you 24-7. So if you are a person with vulnerabilities, they may actually come on, come tell you the truth, tell you problems. And then give you solutions to those problems as you go forward. So I do think vulnerability as a leader uh, is is really something that needs to be done. You can't look like you're infallible all the time because then people aren't going to come talk to you. Plus, you're not, you know, and that's where the stress comes from. One of the things I wanted to make sure we get to, and you you mentioned in our prep session about your family. Um, you've mentioned the divorce. You've mentioned uh, you know that you had stepchildren. Um, uh, in, 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 in anything you want to share about that, as far as kind of to the, the aspects that do make us human and uh, any part of that, that, uh, you feel would be useful for many of the people who are listening. Yeah. And I've talked about it quite a bit because, um, as we know, many women surgeons have fertility issues and some of it has to do with age. Some has to do with, we stand on our feet all the time to make it happen. And We've gone under lots of things now that if young women in medical school or residency want to uh, harvest their eggs, they can so we can make it happen. Because I didn't have my son till I was 40 and I did have to go through in vitro three times and he was a twin and then I had him and, and I actually went into right heart failure for 11 weeks and luckily that got better and, and I was 40 years old. So it was a journey, you know, to make that happen. Um, I do have two stepkids and they've got two kids each that live out in uh, California and their mother has died. So I'm sort of a step grandmother, which also gives you an incredible skill set because you can have opinions, but you can't voice them, you know, so you have to learn <laughs> to just say, okay, you know, to do it. Um, so it, all of that, the dynamics of a blended family, um, I have two brothers uh, and my husband is one of five, you know, all of that is complicated, you know, at best to make it happen. Um, and then trying to get the family together because my stepkids are 15 years older than my son, you know, so they're very much different age groups and, and different generations. I have found it very entertaining, you know, the fact that you have to take holidays. My son and his wife like to travel with us, which I can't quite figure out why they like us, but we do. We've traveled with them. 
And then uh, my grandkids are all coming, hopefully, for the holidays. Then COVID sort of got in the way there to make it happen. But I think that actually just makes you real, too. Now, you can decide you don't want to do that. And, you know, it's fine if you don't have kids or you don't have a family. But you do need to have a, a cohort. So if you look at women surgeons who are a bit older than me, many of them didn't marry or don't have children. So they have cohorts of friends or cohorts of clubs. Or you need some other group that actually can keep you grounded, I think, to make that hit, even though your um, friends at work are important. And when you go through these things, too, uh, you know, I, I needed some help, too, through the divorce. I needed to talk to somebody and make sure I was OK. I was in the middle of the carotid and decided I, I really need to take a little time off. Let your boss know that you're going through this, making sure that you're OK to do it because you feel like you failed, you know, that it wasn't the right thing to do. But as you get through those things, you find out that, you know, as doors close, other doors open. You don't want to go through a window because you could injure yourself. There'll be another door to make it. And my husband, I met in a dating service back in the 90s where you actually had to go in and, and meet them on videos and have mails and stuff. I and mean, we've been married 30 years. We met in August and married in April. And here we are. You know, so uh, I think paying attention to what you think might help you uh, to be that complete person is important. There have been, there's one question, and in general, the, there was another question in, in, that was sent to us about the balancing act. You obviously um, wear, have worn a lot of hats and um, have approached it with energy. How do you balance it all out? What, what advice do you have for people who feel overwhelmed with what they're doing, and how did you balance it? Yeah. Well, and it's probably, uh, again, organization is key. So figuring out how, when you're being a surgeon, that you're present and you're being the best surgeon you can. Because what if you were the patient? Where would you want your mind and your heart and, and your, your physical presence to take care of them? So if you're doing an operation or you're, you're on call, you really need to be focused on that. There was one time I was doing a distal bypass and my husband was out of town and my kid got a fever in daycare. So, you know, you got about 30 minutes. I don't know what they do with the kid if you don't get there, but you got about 30 minutes, right? So I had my partner come in and finish the distal anastomosis. And the next day I, I told the woman, uh, I said, I, I need to apologize, but my kid got sick and my, my partner finished the distal anastomosis. And she looked at me and asked how my kid was. You know, again, making sure you have that backup and you make it happen. Um, my family will tell you I'm pretty unbalanced, you know, because I'm, I'm frenetic, you know, so I actually do things way ahead of time. My, my holiday shopping's done. I buy things online. I'm terribly organized about making sure my grandkids get gifts and this and that. Uh, my husband does all the travel, all the business piece. So he handles that part of our life to do it. But I also delegate huge to my assistants. You know, they run my schedule. They run my travel. They, I don't make any slides. I just tell them sort of what I want it looks like. I have a speech maker that actually does all my talks. That's why they look so good. I delegate all of that. I just give them the thought, but I don't sit there and put the slides together, you know, because when I, I'm, I'm not really good on computers. COVID has helped me a bit, but it's not my thing. Um, but make sure anybody you can find that can do something for you, that means you don't have to do that. Uh, I haven't cleaned my house since 1983. You know, I, I never plan on doing, I don't cook. My husband does all the cooking now. It's not my thing. Uh, but I do do, I exercise, I run, I swim, I craft. I, I'm, I'm a very, I read like crazy. 
So make that what you do, what you love, and then give everything else to someone else. And don't worry if it's not perfect. You know, uh, my husband, when he first started to cook, he, he was really bad, you know, but now he's good. But oh my God, but my kid ate it. That's all that counted. My kid ate it. Life was good. Um, but I think delegating and making sure you have that and, and then having some time for yourself, you know, so that you actually can take a deep breath to make it happen and realize how lucky you are that you still have your health. You have all these friends, these amazing colleagues, and that you actually get to do something amazing every day uh, to take care of patients. And, and most people don't have that wonderful feeling at work. And you, when we talked before, you talked a lot about the joy of the journey, the joy of the journey you've been on. And, and one uh, question that, that uh, you know, we've talked about the beginning of career and the middle of the career. Uh, one question is, how will you decide when it's time to slow down and make your next transition? Yeah. And actually, Chris Ellison put me on that panel at the college two weeks ago. I was on the old person panel. You know, when, when how do you decide when you quit? And uh, so I'm going to be 69 in, in uh, January, and I just do thoracic outlet surgery now. I do a few a month. I tell you, today, taking my younger partner with a third-year student and a fellow through a case, there's nothing better than that, where, you know, you sit there and you just savor all of that. I think you have to look at your health. I've had a couple issues just in the last a few months where I've had some senior surgeons that have some health issues and, and you need to figure that out. Um, I do find myself more tired. You know, I, I don't think I should be taking call and I haven't for a decade to do that. Um, and and then what 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 are you gonna do, right? So I think mm -hmm. I have a plan of a date. So I know I got a date that I'm done. I've got a contract, I'm done. So that we all know we're done to make that happen. And so I'm very busy putting together a team to replace me. The good news is, you know, through the American College of Surgeons and other places, I was president of the Vascular Society. You can still mentor. I do the YFA. Mm -hmm. uh, I do ELAM. I've got six ELAM people that are working with me that are hospital administrators. That gives me a lot of joy. Um, there were a couple of questions about coaching. I use coaching a lot. I could be a coach to do it. But there is a piece that I, I'm, I'm sort of ready. You know, I've done it now for 37 years, um, more years since I became a surgeon than when I became a surgeon. So, yes. so I, I think I'm good. But I think part of it is realizing you've given so much. I'm so lucky to still be healthy to do it and that it's time to enjoy other things so that you aren't that person where they're asking you to leave. You know, you would like to be that person that says, you know, I know you're going to really miss me at least for a day and then everybody will move on. <laughs> It'll be just fine. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Um, one question uh, that and we're getting seven minutes to the end. Um, I wanted to ask you, and you've alluded to this, um, you're at a very high level of leadership and you've alluded to being in touch with the front lines, how, what are the methods you would advise someone to use to not lose touch, to be in touch with the front lines? Yeah. Well, I still operate a bit. So being in the OR today, they just love it, you know, cause I get to, I had a new scrub tech that was with me and they love me walking through the OR. Uh, we're doing some construction too now. So I had to move my parking spot. I drive 10 minutes to work, but I have to walk 10 minutes through the hospital to get to my office. 
And I tell you, I've run into all sorts of people doing that. And, and everybody mm. knows who you are in the elevator, wherever you are, to have those conversations. Uh, we have a daily safety rounds every day at 9.05, and I frequently go to those either virtually or there. And then we do some rounding now. We didn't during COVID. That was hard. But just being around, we're doing that on Monday with some town halls. I do a monthly video, so I talk about something so that they know what we're talking about. And today we have a, a big uh, council meeting where it's about 130 of my leaders where we're talking about all the changes. You know, what does advocate mean? What am I doing now that we have a dean and a president? What does this look like? Where's the org chart? And what is she doing now? You know, if you've got a dean, what are you doing, you know, to make it happen? So I think being connected that way can be very helpful. I do think no matter, you know, if you can still do some patient care, it makes you like tomorrow I have clinic. I'm seeing five new patients tomorrow. I do clinic on Friday afternoon because nobody else wants to. And so I'm in the clinic so I can get talk to the clinic people and see what they're doing. Uh, and they think it's great that I'm showing up, you know, to make it happen. Um, but I think all those things can make it real. And then when people stop and talk to you in our community, I do a lot of community service things and, and volunteer. We have a free clinic that I go to. Um, I think it's really being present so people know that you're real. And it, it can be different no matter where you're at. at. When I was at Hopkins, it was a little different. Uh, so it was more hospital-based stuff. Uh, when I was in California, there was a lot going on in the undergrad campus at UC Davis. So I think um, being part of whatever you feel comfortable so they can see your, again, that you're listening. Great. Julie, thank you so much. I want to finish with just um, one question. What's the worst leadership advice you, you, you've you gotten? And then really, what any final words of wisdom for, uh, for our participants? Yeah. Well, I was told that I couldn't do this. You know, I, I've been told I couldn't do this a lot. Um, you can't be a surgeon. I'm, I think there's some students listening. You know, why would you want to be a surgeon? You'll never make it. Uh, vascular surgery is not where you should be. Um, um, are you sure you really want to be in charge? Uh, and, and, and frankly, I just look at them and, and because someone tells me I can't, I'm really going to show them I can. And, and if you can be that person where you sit there and you listen and you go, I hear you, but then you go ahead and say, you know, I really want to do this. And, but I have been told numerous times I, I couldn't do this, you know, or, um, that, I wasn't the right person for a leadership position in a society at a certain time. I wasn't quite ready or that maybe I wasn't quite the right person. And so then you just go do something else. I remember I was told by somebody that I wasn't ready to be president of the vascular society. So I went and became chair of surgery at Hopkins. Okay, I'll go do that. And then maybe you'll let me do that a little bit later. So when people tell you, you can't, you're just going to tell them you can, just like my grandfather told me, you're just going to say, okay, I hear you especially if there's no basis to it, that mm. you're going to say, well, I'll show you and, and and do it with a smile, you know, not doing it with disdain or, or told you so, but make sure you just go over and smile at them, say, how are you today? You know, and, and make sure they see what you've done. Uh, but that's probably the worst is when they try to tell you you can't. And, and what do they know? You know, I would never do that to anybody that wants to aspire till they either don't have the qualifications or they don't have the intellect to do it. But of course you want everyone to try to be a leader and to go for it. We need lots of different leaders and you need to inspire them all to go do that. Great. Any final uh, comments for the night? No, I, I actually, I saw um, 
people really talking about, you know, do you have a bad partner, a bad boss, a bad this? Yes. Yeah, yes. you're going to have that, you know, and, and, and all of you, usually half of you after two years will change your first job. It's all about appropriateness, personality, practice, and that's okay, you know, and you're not going to change them. So sitting there trying to think you're going to change them is not going to work. And and I have had a, a couple partners that haven't been the best, a couple, uh, and, and most times it's not glaring. You know, people tend to do this now with sort of a microaggression approach versus a macro. You can call it out. You can make it happen. That gets exhausting, right? So you may need to change jobs, but there are so many people that you can work with now that believe in women surgeons, um, diverse surgeons, younger surgeons, older surgeons. Patients are actually really great to do that. I remember many times I had to sit there and tell them I was your surgeon, you know, and and, then, and this one guy told me in, in uh, Milwaukee that he was my student. And I walked into a room at the VA and he was a fourth year student. He's very tall. And the patient thought he was the surgeon. This is probably 1994 or something. And I looked at him. I don't remember this. And I said, he's not the surgeon. He's just a fourth year student. He's really good, but he can't do this surgery. I'm going to do your surgery. So let's talk about it. So the patient was like, okay. <laughs> so part of it is learning <laughs> learning for you to say, okay, and this was 1994. And I was, what, 35 years old? But I was like, oh, you don't want him. You want me. He'll help, but he's not. And he said, I remember you just going don't worry about him. Let's talk about your surgery. So I think you need to feel comfortable with who you are and what you're doing. Julie, I just want to say uh, thank you so much. Um, this has been, you've had so many pearls. Uh, thank you so much. This has been an inspiring conversation. Thank you for joining us on the House of Surgery podcast, brought to you by the American College of Surgeons. If you like this podcast, please rate it five stars and let your friends and colleagues know about the podcast. On social media, use the hashtag House of Surgery. You can learn more about the American College of Surgeons, its members, programs, products, and services at facs.org.